Hi, I'm Felicity and welcome to We Are YA The Check-In, a weekday chat with young adult authors. We're checking in and seeing how your favourite YA authors are doing at home during this time and, of course, talking about their books. My guest today is Tochi Onyabuche, who is the author of Beast Made of Night and its sequel, Crown of Thunder, War Girls, and his adult fiction debut, Riot Baby, which was just published this January. Born in Massachusetts and raised in Connecticut, Tochi is a consummate New Englander, preferring the way the tree leaves turn to the colour of fire on the I-84 to the mosquitoes and being able to boil eggs on the pavement. He has worked in criminal justice, the tech industry and immigration law and prays every day for a new album from System of a Down. Tochi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you. Where am I speaking to you from now? I am currently uh, locked down in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, okay. No worries. I have everything that I need, plenty of food, plenty of, of books, and both an Xbox One and PS4. Oh, oh, you are like loaded and ready to go. Yeah, I am, <laughs> I am good to go. Well, that's good. And in terms of the community in your area, is it, is it, is it okay? Are people feeling good? Yeah, no, we've been, we've been really good so far. Um, it's, you know, it hasn't hit us nearly as hard as it has New York. And my heart goes mm-hmm. out to, to everyone in New York who's currently um, enduring, uh, you know, life at the epicenter of this, of this epidemic. Um, albeit we're, we're prepping for an outbreak. You know, there have been a lot yeah. of, of graphs and models flying around online, and the consensus seems to be that you know, sort of early, mid-April, we might see our our peak number of cases. Things have been looking pretty good so far. The the mm-hmm. the deaths, as as unfortunate as they are, have been kept to a minimum. Um, the hospitals have had uh, you know time to stock up on supplies and and you know test their their nurses and and everyone sort of on the front lines of this thing. And so things have been things have been pretty good so far in in my community. You know, you walk outside, it's a bit of a ghost town, especially, mm-hmm. you know, I live in New Haven and I'm right by Yale campus and so there are no oh. students. None yeah. and you know, people have been staying inside as much as possible, which is, you know, it's you know, kudos to everyone for for properly social distancing. Yeah, and that's the thing. Do the right thing. Stay at home. There is plenty to do, including books. Which exactly. <laughs> hey, segue. Um, for people who haven't heard anything about you as a writer or any of your books, let's talk about War Girls first. What is War Girls about? So War Girls is set in a futuristic Nigeria in the year 2172 uh, amidst a civil war. And it follows these two young women, Onyi and Ifi, who begin the novel in a camp of war orphans. And when their camp is attacked, they're separated and placed on opposite sides of the war and have to fight their way back to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. She says, I'm like, <laughs> eyes flushing. It's, it's okay. Let's also talk about Beast Made of Night, which was your first book and first duology series. Tell us a little bit about that. Certainly. So Beast Made of Night is set in the fictional city of Kos, and it's about a young boy named Taj who has the power to consume other people's sins. And when you consume a sin, you also consume the guilt associated with the sinful act. So you do this enough times, you, you go mad and you die. And the way that it works is a mage will call forth a sin from somebody, and it'll take the form of this monstrous beast that Taj then has to slay and then physically eat. And one day he gets called to do this for a member of the royal family 
and in the process uncovers a plot to destroy his city. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so the reason I ask about both books is because there's such parallels at the moment in the world between both war girls for this sort of dystopian kind of future world that we're seeing, but also in Beast Made of Night, there is such a parallel to the, you know, to the working class, lower socioeconomic or economic class serving the higher class during times of crisis. Is that really weird for you right now? It's interesting. It, it's, I think one of the things that the pandemic is, is doing is it's, it's, it's forcing us to embark on this sort of revelation, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of, mm-hmm. A lot of the dynamics, social dynamics and socioeconomic dynamics that have been obvious to certain groups of people in the United States and, and had been this sort of undercurrent of society are being sort of exposed. So you'll see people praising uh, uh, grocery store cashiers and mm-hmm. nurses and, and, you know, food delivery people. All these people that are essential to making our society function, but who are also among the least well compensated financially in our society. They're people whose work is sort of looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they'll, you know, they'll be called low skilled labor. You know, mm-hmm. the, the people involved in in every, you know, aspect of of food produce and, and grocery stores, you know, people stacking boxes or people packing, you know, boxes at an Amazon factory, all these people that are just that are that are essential to the functioning of a society, even artists, you know, writers, mm-hmm. um, you know, filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera, um, in many instances are are sort of looked down upon. And now we're seeing how essential, absolutely essential, you know, these people are. And that is, that's one thing that I wanted to highlight with Beast Made of Night is that the work that that Taj and the Aki who are able to do the sin eating um, do is looked down upon. It's very much, they're the, they're the people that are, that are ignored in the street or, or walked over or spat upon. Mm-hmm. They're the lowest of the low socially and socioeconomically. They're constantly cheated out of their wages. Um, and there's almost nothing they can do about it. At the same time, for the society that prides itself on sort of moral purity and sinlessness, their work is absolutely essential. You know, the society couldn't function, couldn't exist as it does without them. And so that was always a fascinating dynamic um, for me to explore, especially because, mm. you know, given in my personal life and personal history, I and, and you know, my loved ones who surrounded me have oftentimes, you know, occupied those positions. We've been janitors, we're nurses, mm-hmm. we're all these different, you know, people and occupying these different spaces that make everyone's lives easier and in many cases make their lives livable. But, you know, you ask a janitor how much they're paid and and it's not remotely (laughs) close to Mm -hmm. what, say, for instance, an investment banker uh, gets paid. And, you know, it's debatable, the investment bankers, you know, social, (laughs) social utility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And contribution to society as a whole. Mm hmm. Yeah, and that's just, I, I was just something that really struck me when I was sort of pulling these questions today. I was just like, it's such, both of them have such strong parallels to what's happening right now. But the other part of it is that War Girls for You, you've sort of said, was largely inspired by your mother's story and her experiences in Nigeria and the Biafran War in the late 60s, 
was it something that particularly resonated with you all your life or just recently that you sort of was really aware of her experience? Just recently, probably around 2015, 2016 is when I first, when mom sort of first started talking about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I had an uncle who had mentioned it, um, an uncle on my on my father's side who had mentioned it. Um, but as a kid, it wasn't something that that I was very much concerned with or or, you know, I, I always was paying attention to different things, you know, whether it was school, whether it was, you know, the anime that I was watching on TV, <laughs> you know, what have you. Yeah. You know, you know, it's that it's that 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 trap that a lot of first generation kids fall into where Mm -hmm. they're not very interested in where their parents or the grandparents came from. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until I got older that I started thinking about um, and realizing all the ways in which, you know, these concepts that I'd studied in school as a political science major were sort of made flesh and blood and bone in my very family. Mm-hmm. And so when mom started talking about it, uh, I was fascinated. I was, I was fascinated and I was like, oh my, oh my goodness, this is some, this is, you lived through this. In fact, you were a kid during all of this. What was that like? Um, and so in many ways that, you know, War Girls is inspired by, you know, my mother. And also too, I think it's, it's a sort of, for me, it's this, this pan to, you know, first generation kids sort of all over mm-hmm. asking their parents about, you know, what life was like in the old country. Yeah. Mm. I know. I think as, as kids, we just forget our, 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 what an adulthood is like for parents. And then as we get yeah. to adulthood, we're like, oh, they had this, <laughs> they had lives too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you, as you said it's, you know, obviously based on the Nigerian experience in the Biafran War, but also have you heard from Nigerian Americans about it or even Nigerian readers set in, based in Nigeria? Have they been exposed to the book? Have they given you feedback on it? Certainly. So the the response from Nigerian American readers has been, you know, overwhelmingly positive, um, in part because they feel, you know, there's this sense of recognition that they feel in seeing a book set in Nigeria about Nigerians and about Mm -hmm. a specifically Nigerian issue, too. The thing about the Biafran War is that it's not very much talked about in Nigeria. It's one of those sort of verboten subjects. after the war, there was this policy instituted of no victor, no victim. And so, you know, let's just move on. Let's get on with our lives. Let's, you know, fix things as much as we can, but let's not dwell on what happened. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the underlying, you know, ethnic and tribal differences that sparked the war to begin with were not reckoned with. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the devastation was focused on, the, on Southeast Nigeria, where, you know, the Republic of Biafra had tried to come together. And that's where the Igbo tribe, who identified as Biafrans, are concentrated. So you see much of Nigeria was relatively untouched by the military conflict, except for this one part where this one tribe was concentrated. And when you have this policy of no victor, no victim, there are no reparations that mm. are given to, you know, these people who suffered so, so catastrophically under this, under this um, conflict. And so, you know, seeing the novel, seeing that story written about in a novel and also in a way that, that made it 
appealing to young readers, um, mm -hmm. I think was a really powerful thing for them. There was only one other novel that I remember coming across about the Biafran War. It was Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, and it's very much, uh, you know, it's a beautifully written sort of literary and historical mm. novel set during that time. Um, but for somebody who's fascinated by science fiction and fantasy and who's eager to figure out the ways in which that genre allows me to explore a lot of these really heavy and really deep societal issues, mm -hmm. I wanted to have something that was so important to, you know, the national consciousness of the place where my parents came from examined through that lens of science mm -hmm. fiction and fantasy. And also, too, for for you know, Nigerian Americans my age and younger, uh, this is an opportunity for them to, you know, ask their parents, because there was a whole generation of Nigerians that were affected by this thing. And a lot of them ended up emigrating to America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think even like the way that you've done it through that science, science fiction lens, it makes it like accessible in a way that people who may not want to read a history book, but may want to see a spaceships and two sisters fighting in a YA hero and, you know, novel are going to be in for it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is also my love letter to Gundam Wing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Okay. Tell us all about why it's your love letter to Gundam Wing. I know you want to. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I It's it's interesting. One of the things that has been um, the most surprise, the most surprising joy of my journey as a writer is that I can be unabashedly public about my love of anime <laughs> <laughs> and an anime as a legitimate storytelling influence right there's mm -hmm, a whole mm -hmm. generation of, of creators now who were raised on Toonami on this one block of, of programming on Cartoon Network that started from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday so it was right after school um, back in like I think 1999 and went on for like a decade before like you know being canceled for a while and then sort of coming back with the second wave and for many of us it was our first introduction to anime in the united states and it was extraordinary we had this whole world of incredible storytelling opened up to us and it really fashioned a lot of our sensibilities and you know it, it used to be that you would ask writers their influences and they would say things like oh you know faulkner and and the bronte sisters or hemingway mm -hmm. or mm -hmm, what have mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. And now I can say, you know, if I'm asked my influences, I can say like Akira by Katsuhiro Otomo, or I could say, you know, any Gundam series, or mm -hmm, I could mm -hmm. say Naruto, like I could say Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that, it's funny because that's actually a really good example. There are a number of, you know, science fiction and fantasy writers, both in adult and YA. And if you ask them, what's a, in their opinion what's a story that's perfectly told the consensus pick is avatar the last airbender <laughs> no mm -hmm. I, I i've seen that go down and i've seen you do that thing where you talk about your inspirations and literally you can see people instantly recognize the you know the, the pop culture that you're referencing and go yes yes mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. yeah, it's 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 instant connection so oh, it's, yeah. it's an evolution for sure of what people are talking about. I love it. Well, Absolutely. I, I have to ask, you also had Riot Baby came out to such critical acclaim earlier this year and you ended up on The Daily Show with Trevor, no Trevor Noah <laughs> being all fancy. 
tell, tell us a little bit about what Rye Baby is and also like what that experience was like to sort of get that amazing critical acclaim. Certainly. So Riot Baby, my adult fiction debut, uh, is about these two siblings, Ella and Kev, who grow up in the shadow of the 1992 L.A. uprising um, in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict. And their, their story takes them from South Central L.A. to Harlem to Rikers and then to Watts. And all along the way, they're having to deal with these issues of structural racism, police brutality, mass incarceration, all while developing superpowers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the, the reception of the, of the novella has been absolutely beyond my wildest dreams. Um, it's a story that's very, very personal to me, in part because it, came, it, it, it started to come to me at a time in 2015, 2016, when there was all this sort of videographic evidence of police involved, you know, killings of African Americans. This was all over social media, whether it was Facebook or or Twitter or what have you, it seemed every every other week there was a new hashtag. Um, and that was, you know, it was really traumatizing. And one of the ways in which it it illustrated the sense of continuity was that, you know, one of the biggest things with the the Rodney King trial um, the of the of the four officers who were uh, accused of beating uh, Rodney King uh, there was camcorder evidence of that mm, like mm. They, like that and that was the really big thing was that somebody had videotaped that the whole the whole thing and you know we all saw it I remember as a kid. It might have actually been like the Today Show or something Mm. like that, where they showed the footage. Like, we had all seen it. It had been beamed into all of our living rooms. And yet, these officers were exonerated. And Mm. that is one of the big things that sparked, essentially, um, the uprising that, that ended up happening. And so, you know, I you know, 2015, 2016, and I'm fresh out of law school and I'm seeing all these things. And, you know, there was this terrifying sense of deja vu. And at the same time, this, this incredible sense of powerlessness, you know, what, what could I possibly do in the face of all of this, especially having just graduated from law school where, you know, I'm constantly being taught about, you know, the effectiveness of the law and the impartiality of the law. Mm. And I'm looking at it in practice and I'm seeing the complete opposite Seeing yeah. all these instances where, you know, death is being dealt and, you know, the people responsible are either being exonerated or not even tried, not even charged, what have you, essentially getting off scot-free. And so I knew that I had to to get these feelings sort of out of me somehow. And that's where the story started to sort of come together. And you know, it's really resonating with people. It's really, really resonating with people. And I could not be happier about that. I think particularly given the times that we live in, you know, people are, are, are hungry for that sort of narrative where you can sort of try to imagine what love and hope can look like in that sort of recognizable reality. So the reception has been amazing. And, you know, with regards to the Daily Show thing, that was wild. <laughs> it's it's funny. I so we recorded on a Monday. I found out I was doing that the prior Saturday. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't know it was that fast. Whoa. I so I didn't even have time to freak out. <laughs> I mean, that's probably pretty good then, I guess. 
Oh, yeah. No, it was a blessing in disguise. You're like, okay, it's happening. We're going to make it happen. No, absolutely. Although it's funny, that isn't my first, uh, that, that isn't the first time that I've sat down to talk science fiction and fantasy with Trevor Noah, actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think it was a month after War Girls had come out. Uh, I, and, you know, shout out to, to Vanessa De Jesus, my, my publicist at Razorbell. She is a genius and a wunderkind and just it's a it's an honor and a pleasure to work with her she actually like through some magic i don't quite know how she did it but she got me on this podcast that trevor noah records with a friend about a variety of subjects everything from from oj to golf to whatever <laughs> and uh you know he was doing this episode on science fiction and fantasy and so vanessa set it up that i would be his guest for the recording and i think that planted the seed uh... i don't know if yeah i don't know if my daily show appearance happens without him so yeah. shout out to vanessa um you are incredible i hope you're being safe and thank you <laughs> i feel like this is just a vanessa dedication podcast because she is awesome so there's no there's she no... really is she <laughs> really really is well she's going to be working on the next thing i'm asking you about so i have to ask about it too is <laughs> rebel sisters which is the sequel yes. to war girls coming out later this year what can you tell us without spoiling anything, of course? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, prepare to cry. Oh, don't you? <laughs> Why would you no, say see, that? This is what happens when you're friends with Sama Tahir. Like, you can't oh. help but... <laughs> always Sabatihi's fault it's all her fault always 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 blame her no it's I it's a book that I'm very 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 proud of um it's you know it's it's something that engages a ton of issues that I am fascinated by and very concerned with while at the same time you know gets at all sorts of ideas that I've wanted to play around with for a while um and you know I will say I will say I don't think this is a spoiler maybe spoiler adjacent <laughs> but you know some uh you know a particular you know a, a a particularly beloved character might maybe be making an appearance. Okay. Okay. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll, I'm excited. I'll take that. That's a good one. All right. Well, I had a lot of questions, but I put the call out to the fans and they have questions for you. And we had a lot, but I had to be ruthless, much like Miss Tia and you. I'm taking, I'm taking inspiration and I've narrowed it down to one. I've got one. Mm. So it's from the Instagram DMs and Books Off the Shelf wants to know any hints on your next work in progress. So obviously beyond, beyond Rebel Sisters, what's over the hill? So my, my next, the next thing that I will be working on is uh, a book that will be coming out with Tor.com, the publisher behind Riot Baby, uh, and it's titled Goliath. And it's Ooh. a, it's a, yeah. So it's an adult, you know, going back to some of the themes that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. it's an adult sort of post-apocalyptic novel set in New Haven, Connecticut, about a group of black and brown brick stackers um, uh. who are trying to, yeah, who are trying to make this community for themselves after this sort of apocalypse. And they have to deal with uh, gentrifiers from space. Oh, I, that sentence is, is perfect. Gentrifying yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. That is so brilliant. Is, is there a lot of what you're seeing now affecting what you're writing in that book? 
So it's it's interesting because Goliath was actually, and I think this is this might be some encouragement to a lot of aspiring writers out there. Goliath was written before any of my published novels. So it was written before Beast. It was written before War Girls. um, And it's actually the novel that got me my agent. And so it's been so like validating to see it come full circle. Yes. Like this. Um, so it's, it's a novel that I'm immensely proud of. I re- I put my foot in this. I was firing on all cylinders. Um, and it's, I believe, you know, tentatively scheduled for a 2021 release. We'll yeah. see if, if we can make that, if we can make that stick, but, um, yeah, be on the lookout. That's amazing though, in terms of, you know, the, we just had Marie Lou on the show earlier this week and she talked about the kingdom of back, which just came out was the first book she wanted to write. And so mm-hmm. this classic thing of there's obviously a lot of authors out there with that dream book still sitting in the drawer waiting to exactly. come, waiting, to, waiting for its right moment. Exactly. And that's the, you know, that's the, the lesson or the takeaway, I think, is, is you don't have to give up on it. Yeah. You, know? you don't have to give up on it. Don't, It'll find its moment. Don't delete the draft. <laughs> exactly. The don't, delete, don't delete it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't rage delete. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> but enough about book stuff of your book stuff let's talk about everything else we're checking in as we call it on some of the things that you're doing at home now you don't work from home regularly or you do i do okay so you then have some tips and suggestions about how to get through this mm-hmm. all right go mm-hmm. for it fire them away oh man so so i you know there's a lot of advice flying around about you know oh like you know, put on pants, <laughs> you know, or, yes. you, you know, things like that, or, or, you know, make, you know, go through the motions like you would a regular, a regular day. Um, I've personally found that if I have a space in my apartment that I usually work at and I, I, I have this desk yeah. um, and, you know, it's got this nice sort of ergonomic chair with it. I go to that desk and that's where I get most of my work done, mm-hmm. whether it's writing, whether it's, you know, answering emails or other administrative stuff. Um, also too, you know, if you're, if you're sort of not on the nine to five or 10 to six schedule, figure out what schedule works for you. I'm naturally a night owl. Yeah. And me, too. me too. Yeah. And so this has been, an opportunity for me to really sort of find my rhythm with that. And I think there are, there are people who are in, I guess you could say somatically like different situations and whatnot. And they may find that their levels of productivity may not necessarily match the nine to five, 10 to six schedule. And so this is an opportunity to figure out, I think what works for you also always make sure you're eating. Um, That is, I think a very, very important part that can occasionally get lost in the weeds. Cause I know for me, at least I'll get so involved in my work, particularly if I'm writing that I'll, I'll forget to eat. You know, I'll get to a point where I'm feeling kind of, kind of off yeah. or, you know, I'm feeling a little weird or something's not quite right. And I'll be like, wow, is it this thing that I'm working on? Like, I, I don't know why I feel so, you know, offended by this email that I have to confirm, like, da da da. And it's, no, Toji, you just haven't eaten for seven <laughs> hours. <laughs> You're just hungry. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, stab it to a Snickers, man. You're not yourself. Uh, see, I'm the, I'm the other way. I'm like, 
I need to stop going to the cupboard or the fridge every time I have a thought. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to check out the fridge because it may have changed in the last 10 minutes. No, absolutely. I mean, one thing that's been really, really, really helpful for me um, is, and, you know, this isn't necessarily going to work for everybody given, Mm -hmm. you know, the variety of jobs that people have. I like to leave my phone in another room. That's a smart idea. Yeah. Like even if I, even if I turn it over on my desk, it's still too close to me. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I can constantly be checking it just for that serotonin boost. Right. Mm-hmm. If I leave it in another room, I have to be intentional about whether or not I'm going to check social media or what have you. So that actually allows me to break away for long enough to get into whatever flow or whatever, whatever rhythm I need to get into to get work done. I like that. That's a good tip. I like that. <laughs> All right. My next set of questions is what are you reading right now? What are you loving? What's a great survive the, the isolation, self-isolation period suggestion that you have for people? Oh, man, I'm, you know, I've been able to finally, finally, finally get at some books that have been sitting on my shelf yeah. for years. And I just started um, the Three Body Problem trilogy oh. by Cixin Lu, translated by, by, you know, my good buddy Ken Lu. And it is mind busting. <laughs> <laughs> I finished I finished the first book maybe a couple days ago, and I'm still recovering from that. I still haven't even got you know gotten to the place where I can start book two. It's it's so weird, and it gets into like you know all sorts of weird like there's one part where you know a group of aliens create like a a you know a world that's shaped like like giant geometric objects that have all this surface area but very little mass and they exist microscopically in like nine dimensions while macroscopically they exist in like three so they're these like shapes that are incredibly complex on the inside to the extent that they harbor intelligent life somehow. And it's just like, what, what on earth is that? <laughs> that is, wow. That, I mean, this is probably the very right time to read it because you would need so much immersive focus, I feel like, with a read like Exactly. That. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, Oof. exactly. Oof. All right. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> what TV show should everyone be binging or watching? Or what are you doing? Today? Oh, my goodness. I so I am such a huge fan of Kingdom on Netflix. Okay, yeah. Uh, the second season just came out. Um, it's it's based it's a historical drama set in um, ancient Korea. I forget what period exactly. Maybe Joseon, and it's essentially um, about a zombie epidemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah. Zombies in zombies in ancient Korea. Okay, okay, good one. I like it. You've got some really good suggestions, some out there suggestions. All right, the next one, podcast. Do you listen to them? What should we be listening to? Oh my goodness, I so I'm not really a podcast guy, mm-hmm. um, but I get a lot of solace from Sarah Ennie's First Draft podcast. Yeah. Big shout out and. Yeah. And I, you know, shout out to Sarah. Um, she's doing such extraordinary work and it's so lovely. I love hearing other writers talk about craft Yeah, and talk about what they do and how they do it and whatnot. Um, it just, it like, not only is it inspiring, but it just makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so that is that is something that I've been, you know, finding myself retreating to a lot um, is, you know, and it's also nice, too, because I get to hear friends' voices. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So shout out to the First Draft Podcast by Sarah Ennie. All right. And then here's this next one. I usually ask this with a, with a, with a big question mark against it because I'm not sure. But this one I know. I'm confident you're going to have recommendations. Games. Games. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> this is my jam. You're like, step, step aside, everybody. I'm ready. Yeah. I got this. <laughs> so I am currently in the midst of Red Dead Redemption 2. <gasps> okay. So, yep. yes. My, it's funny, my brother got it for me, I think, a couple Christmases ago. And this is finally the first opportunity that I have to sit down and play through it and i am a sucker for open world narratively intense video games you know like mm -hmm. you know god of war the last of us the last of us is like my favorite game ever and so red dead redemption 2 is like magisterial first of all it's just a gorgeous game like it's so beautiful the the landscapes the the way you can track the rising and setting of the sun like there are times where i would just ride my horse around literally <laughs> just to watch the you know just to watch the landscape change around me it's so gorgeously rendered um you know the dialogue is just on point and it's such a such a compelling story and you know i love games that can even like make me tear up at times mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know there are certain points in the story that are just absolutely heartbreaking um also too it's a long game <laughs> that's good, good. It's, yeah it's really good but it's like honestly like reading war and peace was was a quicker <laughs> thing than than playing through this game but i think it's it's exactly sort of what i what i need yeah, right and now we've got time people have got time this is the this is exactly. the time for a game like that that's perfect what exactly is, well touchy you survived the check-in questions well done and thank you so much for <laughs> joining me on the podcast today oh uh, a pleasure as always felicity a pleasure <laughs> touchy on your bridge's books including war girls are available from all bookstores and if you're at home they're also available in both ebook and audio on your favorite platforms you can follow touchy on both instagram and twitter Next week, we're joined by guests including debut rom-com author Cameron Lund and the editor of the anthology, A Phoenix First Must Burn, Patrice Caldwell. See you then.